more dairy intake causes more hip fracture risk. And I was like, whoa, what's going on? And I think that was one of the first days where I was like, uh, this is really troubling <laughs> because as a pediatrician, I'm making sure my patients get two or three servings of dairy a day. That's the messaging that we were taught. And so I, I sort of like, you know, was taken aback by that. And I just, you know, fell into the rabbit hole, um, started reading a lot more and delving more into that. And at that point, I started questioning everything. <laughs> Are you ready to upgrade your health to a new level and do so by learning from experts in the field of lifestyle medicine and plant-based nutrition? Well, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Plant-Based DFW Podcast Weekly Show. We are your hosts, Dr. Rizwan Bukhari and Maya Acosta. Every week, we will feature guests who are either physicians, dietitians, health coaches, or chefs who will tell us about their journeys towards becoming plant-based and how they have helped others. And as you dive into the episodes, never forget, the more you implement these healthy lifestyle changes, the more you will upgrade your health. In today's episode, you will meet Dr. Roxanne George. She is a board-certified pediatrician. She's also a graduate of eCornell's Plant-Based Nutrition Certification course. Dr. George is actually from the New Jersey, New York area, and in 2014, she moved just north of Houston in Spring, Texas. In today's episode, we talk about some of the issues that her patients deal with, such as chronic constipation and chronic ear infections, and how plant-based nutrition can actually help remedy those issues. She also gives parents tips on how to deal with picky eaters. Hope that you enjoy this episode. So welcome, Dr. George. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be on your podcast. I've, I've listened and I'm a big fan, so fun to be on. <laughs> Last year, I saw you on um, as part of a panel discussion in Houston at one of the VegFests. Yeah. And then we saw you again, I think, at the Lifestyle Medicine Conference, right? Um, I think it was a plantrician conference, one of those big conferences, though. We went to so many conferences, who can remember which one, right? In one year, we went to the Holistic Holiday at Sea, plantrician. Lifestyle Medicine. Lifestyle Medicine. And ICNM, and Barnard Center, all in one year, and so you oh, know wow. it, it was a great year, but it all started to run together as far as uh, you know who, who we saw where. Who we saw where, yeah, I know, I totally get it. <laughs> and then Riz was like, "I've had enough," and that's on top of the visits I made to Houston because yeah. I went for some of the doctors, doctors Chowla uh, events that they put together. So I drove like three or four times, and you went twice with me, I think. So yeah, we we were busy last year. Yeah, but I'm glad we did it because uh, then this year everything got shut down. So we didn't have an option or an opportunity to go. Everything. I was just going to say, it's a good thing you went last year. <laughs> so everything's virtual. And of course, you know, you and I know that because we've been doing a lot of these virtual conferences. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's get to know a little bit about you, Dr. George. Uh, tell us, are you from the Texas area? I mean, I'm in Houston right now. Um, I practice just north of Houston in spring, um, but I actually grew up in New Jersey, New York, um, and I was practicing up there until 2014. Um, and when I moved down here, um, just for, you know, the warmer weather and <laughs> better uh, hours and things like that. So um, yeah, it's been nice to be down here. I miss the busyness of, the, of New York, but it's, it's fun. <laughs> So tell us uh, a little bit about your background. You're a pediatrician. How did, you know, uh, you know, where you went to school, your training, why did you become a pediatrician? So yeah, I'm a board certified pediatrician and I have the eCornell certification in plant-based nutrition. Um, I, 
you know, started undergrad, I went to Virginia Commonwealth in Richmond and um, had a huge interest in genetic research at that time. Um, and they were part of the human genome mapping, you know, the human genome project. So that was my big um, pull to go there. And I didn't know you were that old. Uh, sorry? <laughs> yeah, that's some time ago, right? Oh, yeah, I'm aging myself. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> a while ago. Um, but I really, really enjoyed it. I got to do different types of uh, research projects. And that's when I sort of developed my passion for research in high school. Um, my high school is very lucky. We had um, an amazing um, biology AP bio teacher who actually taught us um, how to do like pipetting and genetics, like research and isolating DNA and all this stuff. So it was like a very unique experience. And that sort of fueled my interest in uh, research and genetics and um, got to do transpose on research, which is like jumping genes um, in plant genetics and sort of, you know, that whole concept was sort of new and, you know, in its understanding at that time. Um, also did cystic fibrosis research and viral research. Um, and so I started to go down this path of like, yeah, I really, really, really love research. I loved bench research. So um, after that, I joined Unilever and did some foundational skin study, uh, clinical studies there with some uh, different surfactants or soap studies and things like that. So I'm a research nerd is the bottom line. <laughs> you Right after college, you did research. You didn't go straight into medical school. No, I didn't. I was really, you know, sort of overwhelmed with like my love for research. And so I was sort of like, you know, to my family's, you know, dismay, kind of put that on hold and wanted to, it was like, maybe I'll just you know, go down this research path. Um, and just, you know, I just loved it. I, you know, I don't know how else to explain it. And so um, after college, I just wanted to do that. And I went to, um, after Unilever, I actually joined a program um, at Howard University School of Medicine to do antibiotic resistance research was ultimately my, my passion. So that was my big project. Um, and at that time, you know, being, you know, in the School of Medicine and all of that, I was more interested in kind of getting more interested in going into medicine. So did some, you know, pursued medical school soon after that. How did they, did you decide that you wanted to work with children? It chose me, actually. <laughs> Everyone, um, all my family and close friends, they were always saying that I would probably be a pediatrician, even from when I was an undergrad. And I was like, sort of like, oh, because I'm a woman, like, you think I'm going to be a pediatrician, you know, and so it didn't really occur to me until after I did my internal medicine rotation, I ended up really not sort of clicking with it. Um, after that, I had my surgery rotation, I had some pediatric cases. And, you know, in those cases, I started talking to the parents and the kids and I started to be like, wow, I actually really do love it. I'm like, darn it, they were right. <laughs> and <laughs> I did my pediatric rotation. It was it was a no brainer. It was what I was meant to do. So where'd you do your pediatrics residency? Um, up at Winthrop Hospital, NYU Winthrop, it's known as now up in Long Island. Um, so it was a great program. We were part of, you know, a children's hospital and we had two close um, children's hospitals nearby as well. Uh, North Shore and LIJ, um, you know, had children's hospitals. So it was um, a really great experience um, to just, you know, be in New York and see so many different variety of cases. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> So now during this time, how are you seeing your patients? And did you at one point stop seeing them during um, this time of pandemic? Um, no, we never shut down. We were always seeing patients. Um, we 
offered a little bit more virtual visits, you know, um, telemedicine visits with our patients during that time for like ADHD cases and things that we could manage sort of more, um, you know, via telehealth. But um, no, we were still at every every point we were still seeing patients. So it's, um, you know, we were lucky to, so far, luckily our staff and everyone's been okay. Um, but yeah. What kind of practice are you in? A group practice, individual? Yeah, it's a group practice. Um, we just have three physicians. Um, it's not, you know, super big or anything um, right outside uh, development I, you know, live in. And so it's been um, really uh, it's a close knit community. Um, so I know my neighbors, they come and see me. I'll, you know, they'll, you know, call me and be like, can you just come next door? And I'll run down with my stethoscope and like otoscope, <laughs> you know, so it's like a real like small town feel. And I mean, there was one night where I had three neighbors that like called me. And so I was just walking around with my doctor bag from house to house. And I was like, well, this is what it used to be like. <laughs> yeah, a long time ago. And, and so tell me how you got involved or interested in, in uh, plant based nutrition. Uh, and then maybe how, you know, how you incorporate that into your, into your medical practice. Yeah, I love incorporating it into my medical practice. I honestly reignited my my love for medicine too, because when I first moved down from New York to Houston, I um, started having much like, uh, you know, started having these conversations about obesity more and more and more. And I sort of felt like I wasn't sort of making any difference or making any change, just like the messaging wasn't landing. And so I went back to my roots and sort of um, dug into the research and said, you know, maybe there's something else, I, like another approach I can take, maybe another sort of, you know, point that will get through to people rather than being like, you know, eat healthy, work out, you know, cut out your fats and eat more. And at that time, it was more like eat protein and all this kind of messaging that was more around and more, you know, sort of the volume on that was sort of higher. So, um, when I started doing my research, I sort of stumbled on like different things on dairy and milk. And I was sort of like, wait, dairy's, you know, causing hip fracture, like more dairy intake causes more hip fracture risk. And I was like, whoa, what's going on? And I think that was one of the first days where I was like, uh, this is really troubling <laughs> because as a pediatrician, I'm making sure my patients get two or three servings of dairy a day. That's the messaging that we were taught. And so I, I sort of like, you know, was taken aback by that. And I just, you know, fell into the rabbit hole, um, started reading a lot more and delving more into that. And at that point, I started questioning everything. <laughs> and so I started being like, okay, is this true? I started looking into vaccines. I started looking into, you know, what is, you know, animal protein? What is it different? Why is this causing that? What is TMAO? I'd never even heard of that. Um, so all this kind of um, interesting research that, you know, I sort of fell into. And then I started, you know, the first documentary that I saw was actually Fed Up. I don't know if you guys have watched that one, um, on like sugar intake, and it really talks about children. And so that was the first documentary that I had seen. And the one that, you know, after I watched that, this was like all during kind of the same time frame, um, the Forks Over Knives, like documentary was recommended on Netflix. And I was like, okay, click. And then I was like, oh my God, people know about this. This is a documentary. Injury. <laughs> and so it was like, you know, after that, I actually was in the process of transitioning to the practice I'm at now. And so I had a few months off and I just like downloaded. <laughs> I was sitting in front of my computer for hours. I got my e-certification and it was just okay. And then after that, it was like my mission because my thought is that if parents just knew how bad the bad was and how good the good is, 
I mean, we can change the world. It's just that the messaging isn't out there. For some reason, we need like a better marketing team or, you know, we have to get this message because everyone is like in moderation. It's, it's an, you know, it's a kid's meal. It's okay. They're kids. They can eat like this. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's talk about what you're actually including in that kid's meal. That kid's meal is a habit. You are now telling your child that it's okay to eat this way because, you know, when you have a bad day, you can eat this way. When you have a good day, you should eat this way. When you are in a rush, eat for convenience, not for nutrition. And these are all the underlying messaging that we are sending to our children without even realizing it. But if we knew that processed meat, like if parents really understood every day I'm sending, I'm saying this message and parents are like, processed meat is a carcinogen. Yeah. And, and, they, and they have a hard time believing you too, because they were raised the same way. Yeah, right, right. And it's, you know, and it's time, you know, I always quote Maya Angelou, because I just love her that quote, where when we know better, we do better. Um, because it's so true, you know, we can't blame our parents and, you know, grandparents, because at, they were battling different things at that time. But at, you know, it, at this point, when we know so much, it's been over 20 years of research into these topics that, you know, the bad is terrible, and worse than you could imagine, and the good is way better than you even knew. Um, it's time to change so our marketing arm is uh you know like you said it's uh it's not well funded right right (laughs) dr gregor says no big broccoli right exactly (laughs) the other side is funded by lobbyists and even the government supports so many of these things so it is it is an uphill battle but we just got to keep putting the message out right this is how we market this is our marketing techniques now you know just spreading the message like this through conversations so uh tell me how you know you you work this into your practice on a daily basis uh And how is it received and how do your colleagues, how do they respond to this? You know, my colleagues are, you know, they have their own habits, I guess is the best way to, you know, describe it. Um, They are not negative towards it at all. Um, I don't know that they've sort of understood or taken the time to really, you know, delve into it themselves. Um, I sort of, you know, give them studies and things here and there. Um, But as far as how I incorporate it into my practice, um, whenever I can, Um, you know, unfortunately in primary care, it's always that time restraint where we have like, I have five to seven minutes per patient, you know, um, pediatrics is all volume based because we just, you know, it's pediatrics and we low man on the totem pole. And so you don't, you know, as a group practice, it's, you know, very limited as far as time. but I always take the time because it's so important. Um, and I have to say in the last two and a half to three years, it's been a lot easier to talk to parents about cutting out dairy. It's been profoundly easier, I would say. Um, I think a little bit of that, fortunately or unfortunately, is because of the paleo type of talks that are going around <laughs> um, with them cutting out dairy. Um, so a lot of the parents are like, oh, yeah, we've already cut out dairy. It's like, oh, really? Like, yeah, we're paleo. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> yes, yeah. I guess a lot of people now know it's one of those things you don't want in your diet anymore. Yeah. So when you when you bring this up uh, with the families, uh, do you do you tell them that they have to go uh, plant based, or do you say, oh, let's incorporate just incorporate more healthy stuff into your diet, like more more fruits and vegetables, and cut out some of the bad stuff? Is that how do you approach it? 
would say on a you know patient by patient basis, as you know, you kind of have to meet people where they're at and where they're willing to listen. Um, within seven minutes, I'm not you know I don't have that level of optimism that I'm going to be able to split them on a dime. Um, so I kind of feel feel it out, and um, people are starting to kind of I guess in my area maybe know me that I'm a little bit more nutritional based, and so they will you know sometimes say, well, the reason we've picked you, Doctor George, is because we saw that you have a background in nutrition. So then they're more open to it, and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad that you brought that up and I can delve more into it. Um, but I would say, you know, on, on a case by case basis, and I bring it up, um, probably the first thing I talk to my patients about just sort of like across the board is after two years of age, no reason for dairy, cut it out of your diet, switch over to soy milk, almond milk, we know better, do better. Um, and they're like, oh, okay, you know, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> just move on, you know, um, because there's absolutely no reason. Um, and, you know, I, I talk to them about healthy eating and fruits and vegetables. And I tell them that there was an epidemiological study done that if children in the US ate one more fruit a day, one more fruit, there would be 20,000 less cases of cancer in children. Isn't that amazing? You know, and they're like, what? And I'm like, that's the power of fruit. Eat your fruit, you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, actually, I was going to delve into Let's talk about some of the specifics about a plant-based or vegan diet in children and, you know, uh, what are some of the, the things that you have to address, some of the myths you have to talk about, some of the, you know, the issues like people talk about getting children getting their fat, children getting their vitamins and stuff. Is a, is a vegan diet okay for children? Absolutely. And, um, you know, I always forget the new name, but the American Dietetic Association, they go by a slightly different name now. Um, they have, you know, put that statement out there that, you know, that is more, it's been a few years now, um, that a vegan vegetarian diet is appropriate for every stage of life, including infancy, childhood, adolescence, during, you know, pregnancy, lactation, and um, even for athletes. And so, you know, there's been, that's been out there, it's well established. Um, so it is 100%. And they actually go forward and even say in that statement, that is probably healthier. <laughs> you know, this is evidence based advice that they give, right? It's not just an opinion, it's based on the data uh, and the and the studies that are published. Right, which is why it's important to have these kinds of organizations really step up to the plate and say that, um, you know, again, it's, there's a lot of politics sometimes at play with some of these agencies because they are funded by, you know, other entities. Um, so yeah, it is evidence-based and it has um, been out there for years now. So it is um, actually a healthier lifestyle. Um, and as far as the, I don't know if you want me to go back to the acanthosis really quick, but the acanthosis nigricans, that is like a darkening velvety kind of um, skin appearance on the back of the neck. And it can be in the armpit areas as well. Um, that can be an early sign that there is some extra hormones that are, you know, putting like excessive insulin that is is probably putting that child at risk for um, diabetes. And so it is um, sort of a visual cue to test that child to see if there's a elevated, you know, A1C or glucose levels to make sure that they're not turning into a, you know, an, a risk for diabetes. Is that typically a type one diabetic? Uh, two. Type two. Okay. And so how do you address then any of those concerns with the parents when you see that some of your patients might be a little bit on the heavier side? It's a touchy subject because sometimes the parents themselves are overweight um, or sometimes I've already talked or they bring it up to me and they're like, Dr. George, I've tried everything, um, you know, and so it's, it is a very, you know, 
you know, you have to be very careful in how we approach that because children are listening um, and they can, you know, psychological aspect of it is just as important as the, you know, clinic, like the, um, you know, body aspect of it. Um, so, you know, how I approach it is again, case by case. Um, one of the biggest things, the approach I take, I would say is to talk about adding in rather than taking out. Um, so don't focus on like, okay, you can't eat your Doritos. You can't have your soda. You can't have, you know, I'll say, you know, just water, no juice, no soda. And just as a, you know, blanketed statement, but not, you know, directed at a child um, that is having this obesity issue. Um, and so I think it's important to take that approach because just the way our, our minds work, it, it becomes from a more positive place. Um, so if we're talking about, you know, let's eat a whole big bowl of different vegetables, let's go to the grocery store, pick a crazy vegetable that looks really weird on a Saturday, look up a recipe, try to figure out how to make it, make it a home project, make it fun. You know, we have to remember the tools that companies like cereal companies use and why it's so effective in children because they make it fun. They make it interesting, colorful. They use cartoons with high voices. You know, it's this positive reinforcement that we have to use um, to, to get through to our children. So I would say I use that crowding out. So adding in more fruits and vegetables, uh, modeling behavior talking to parents about they're not going to do something you're not doing or that you make a face about. So if you make a face every time, you know, somebody brings up broccoli, your child's not going to eat broccoli. Well, so much of this is a, a behavioral issue. Uh, you can't just tell them, hey, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. There's got to be, you got to have the, uh, figure out the way to do it. Right, exactly. And, you know, for, for eons now, right, doctors have just been like sort of dictators and been like, do, 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 do. Okay, see me in a week, you know. <laughs> Um, but I think there's, um, you know, more research showing that that's not as effective as we we'd had hoped. <laughs> what are some other common issues that you see in your patients? So one of the big ones I treat with um, this plant-based approach is constipation, chronic constipation issues. Um, you know, I've had so many success stories now with um, children that have been through GI, that are still on Miralax, that have been on Miralax, that, um, you know, done probiotics, have, you know, they say they're eating so much more fiber and they're using the Metamucil and the Benefibers and all those kinds of things. And, you know, again, talking to them about cutting out dairy. Um, you know, there has been so successful in my constipation, chronic constipation groups, and even the infants, you know, some of them on these cow's milk based formulas and changing them to like, either a soy based or, you know, plant based formula has been very successful. Um, and so that and ear and chronic ear infections has also been really successful. Um, people don't realize that, you know, that dairy can create, make the body create more mucus. And so when we, you know, we have so many examples of that, even in adults and younger people that when they've gotten off dairy, their mucus and their sinus infections and allergies get so much better. Um, and so I've had so many good cases and in, I'm laughing because I had this case where um, this baby was doing, she was only like 18 months old and she was doing so much better off of dairy. And, you know, she, she was just on the verge of getting ear tube surgery because of the chronic ear infections. And the families was like, I really don't want to put her through surgery. What can I do? And so, you know, we did this and she was doing great. And then the, the dad was like, she's fine. She's doing great. And, and gave her and started giving her milk again. And within like a week, she got an ear infection. And it was like, and the mom was like shaking her head at him at the visit. Like, I told him not 
to do it. <laughs> and, you know, so it was like, it really, like it worked like with precision. And then as soon as she got the milk back, it, she got another ear infection. And he was like, I'm sorry, it's my fault. <laughs> Maybe that helped it reinforce to them to keep her off of dairy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it did for sure. Yeah. So after that, they were believers, you know. <laughs> so another thing about kids, um, uh, some people think that kids shouldn't be on a vegan diet or, or plant-based diet because they don't get enough fat in their diet. Uh, and how do you, what do you say about that and how do you address it? In children, we actually, they actually do need more fat in their diet. Um, but I, you know, by no means is it hard to get, um, you know, the only, we, luckily we live in a, you know, most of us live in this country where there's an abundance and we can find, you know, flaxseed, chia seeds, nut butters, avocados, you know, like all these good sources of fats. And so, you know, for some of the plant-based families that follow me, I just make sure they understand that they, children do need more fat in their diet. It's not like the 10% that adults need, you know, between, you know, there's like 30 to like, it's like 40% and 30 to 40% as they get older. And it's just adding like an extra tablespoon of like hemp seeds, hold hemp seeds on their um, hemp hearts is another name for it, where you just sprinkle it on their food that they're already eating. They don't even taste it. Uh, Flaxseed and a smoothie. Um, they get not just apple slices, they get apple slices with nut butter on it. It It's not hard. Um, you know, for some of my pa patients or families that are a little bit more you know, they need to have a little bit more structure and make sure they're doing it well. I just tell them, take a couple of days and put it in your chronometer or, you know, I think my fitness pal or something like that, where you're tracking it for two days in, in like a typical two days of eating. Um, and then you'll know for sure um, that they're getting enough. And so, you know, sometimes some of the families before the pandemic, I used to um, meet with them like at Starbucks and kind of like walk them through it. And they would write down like food journals. And I would, cause some of my patients, like they weren't gaining weight or some other issue, you know, or they're gaining too much weight. And so I'll kind of like walk them through like, okay, let's make tweak this, tweak that. And you know, that would um, help them out a lot. But you know, now, you know, I started kind of getting more dependent on like chronometer and things like that. Um, so that families would feel more secure in, okay, I'm reaching that percentage, I know I'm doing enough, this is what it looks like, I can do it, you know, so how much more fat does a child need? Is it more early on and then it decreases over time? Or? So it's about 40% in infancy. And then um, it goes to like 30% around, I think, three to don't quote me, I have this written down somewhere, but three to six years of age, and then, you know, six to like 10 years of age, it's, you know, 20%. So it kind of gradually goes down. And then just about like, 15, it depends on boys and girls are different, but girls need a little bit more fat longer. But um, boy, girl, around 12 years of age, it, you know, can reach around 15%. So how do you support parents when they have picky eaters at home? That is one of the biggest questions we have, um, just in general in pediatrics. Um, I think it's, you know, I always say like back in the days when porridge was the only option, nobody was picky eater, you know? <laughs> it's just that we have such a variety of food nowadays and people are, you know, convenience, you know, is above everything else, I feel like. So when we get to those convenience foods, they're high salt, high fat, high sugar foods. And so they totally corrupt our children's taste buds. Um, and so when you, you know, you may even notice that with adults, when they're eating this high salt, high fat diet, when you try to take it out, those first few days are like the mind's like, no, why did you do this to me? Because as human creatures, as animals, we are, you know, driven towards these high calorie, high salt foods, because they're so rare in nature that if it's like, if you found a source, your brain is like, go back, you know? Um, and so we have to like, outsmart our 
basic instincts sort of and be like, nope, I'm doing the right thing for you. Even though this tastes like cardboard now in two, you know, in about two weeks, it's going to, you're going to start to taste those um, sugars, those natural sugars, natural level once your taste buds readjust. Um, and so with our children that are picky eaters, you know, we have to do it gradually, but I always tell parents, don't become a short order cook. You know, you, you are, know you're doing the right thing. You just have to give it time, modeling good behavior, and then just offering, you know, those foods on a regular basis, make it fun, make it interesting, get your kids involved. You know, there are children in California that are four years old eating kale salads, like, <laughs> why how is that happening right like they're coming home to their families with like smoothie recipes like mom can you make this kale cucumber carrot smoothie for me and they're like excuse me who are you <laughs> and their parents are eating healthier because of them right because their school programs have them gardening they have them growing the kale they have them in the classroom with a blender making these little different smoothies they're making them oh how do we make a purple smoothie how do we make a you know orange smoothie what things do we add you know, and they make it fun. Um, and so we have to, again, go back to the marketing because it's all about the marketing. <laughs> we have to make it fun and interesting and get them involved. You know, even if you're growing rosemary or mint on your windowsill, if you just tell your child, oh, can you grab a little rosemary? Can you add it to the pot? They're like, cool, let me try that. That sounds so interesting, you know. And they're interested in eating then. And, you know, unfortunately, we've gotten away from these home life skills, you know, like some of these, some of parents don't even know how to cook these days. So it's, it's a little extra hard. <laughs> I have a sister who's still teaching and she says that every child has to take a carton of milk still, whether they want to drink it or not, even if they're lactose intolerant and have said that they do not want to drink the milk. And then the teachers have to go at, um, to each children's tray and open each carton of milk. It has to be opened. Sometimes I think about that, even if parents' intentions are to feed the children healthier options, they still have to fight the school system. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> My parent, my patients and families know me. So I write letters left and right about them not having to have dairy products in their diet, you know, um, for my plant-based families, you know, I'm like, let me know, like doctor's letter, you know, um, just because this is ridiculous, you know, I mean, they're like, everything goes if you have a doctor's letter. I'm like, let me just turn them out, you know, because there's absolutely no reason this child needs to have dairy in their diet. They are like seven years old and, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so tell us more about that place for parents that might be listening listening. Um, how can we go to our pediatrician and ask them what would a letter look like? And is it only for milk? Or well, I wouldn't say that all pediatricians are going to be able to you're going to write this letter, you know, being a plant based pediatrician, knowing the harmful effects of dairy, I, you know, I know it's not good for them. And I have no problem writing that letter for again, as a pediatrician, before I found did my research, I was of the mindset that children need two to three servings of dairy a day. That is the rhetoric that we are taught as pediatricians. And that's the rhetoric a lot of pediatricians are still um, swearing by. The American Pediatrics Association just came out with the position statement again, saying that uh, they recommend dairy on a daily basis for children. I always tell my patients, I'm like, in 10 years, as your pediatrician, at least you'll know that a doctor and a physician stood in front of you and told you the truth and what was coming down the pipeline. So you have this knowledge now. It took over 20 years for the Surgeon General's report on smoking to be you know, written. And so here you, here we are around that same timeline. And I'm like, you're getting this information from a physician. So, you know, at least in 10 years, when everybody else understands this, you'll be like, 
I knew it. My doctor told me 10 years ago. <laughs> I got two medical questions, two more. Uh, what's your opinion about early menarche occurring in our country? Why is it happening? Also, is there an association between dairy and type 1 diabetes? The early, um, I say menarche, I don't know, menarche, um, that is happening. Um, <laughs> I'm a vascular surgeon. What do I know? You know? It's okay. <laughs> um, that is happening in, our, um, in most Western countries, actually, is a direct link to animal protein intakes. Um, so it's been established that the higher animal protein intake that is found in even actually, it could be even found, I think, well, I won't say that, but it, you know, that is found in children from, you know, early ages has been linked to early uh, menarche is when your um, daughter first starts her period. Um, that has been linked to your rates of animal protein intake in your diet directly. Um, and so, you know, countries like in Europe and in the US, um, you know, unfortunately, because of the higher rates of meat intake um, that have been happening over the last few decades, we've slowly noticed the age of that first period has been decreasing. So, you know, back, I don't know if you want to say like 1700s or before, um, menarche was happening around 16. And now we are closer to 11, 12 years of age. And, and so, you know, it's kind of makes sense, right? Like you have like Sweet 16 and Quinciera and all these kinds of things where it was like celebrating, you know, a girl going into being a woman. And, you know, now that's happening. Like, uh, what are we going to have? Like, Anze or I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's happening so much younger now. And it's almost like you could draw the lines with increasing dairy and decreasing age of that first period. So um, it's, um, yeah, it's startling, because again, this is being shown in like epidemiological studies, but nobody's talking about it, right? Like pediatricians aren't told to say, hey, let's decrease this animal protein intake. So are there some any negative health consequences of uh, starting earlier? So the idea behind that is, you know, is there, I think that's, you know, evolving. I don't, I personally don't know of any like concrete studies, but the concept is that if you're starting your, your periods earlier, then you are extending how many years of, you know, what can I, how do I describe it? Like your reproductive years. And so it's, you know, more chance of, risk of cancer and, you know, hormonal issues later in life. So breast cancer, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, things like that, because that age is decreasing. So the younger that age, the higher the risk of these issues later on in life. Because in women, many of these things are hormonally dependent. Exactly. Mm -hmm. okay. okay, so what about the uh, diabetes and uh, dairy? So I was shocked in to know, all, I mean, to, to read that cow's milk actually increases the rate or chances of development of type one diabetes in children. I, I, I mean, this seems shocking to me that if this was the only thing we knew about dairy and why we shouldn't be offering it to our children, this across the board would be enough information to stop giving our children dairy. And it's as if, I mean, type one diabetes is sort of, you know, it, it is promoted like, oh, it's a genetic issue. There's no way to stop it. And that's kind of how I came out of medical school and residency was like, oh, if you have type one diabetes, that's just terrible. And, you know, there was nothing you could have done differently. And now, you know, seeing some of these links with increasing risk of type one diabetes with your increased dairy intake is 
shocking. I'm like, wait, so, I mean, nothing's a silver bullet, right? Like I never want to say like, oh, if you do this, you won't get it. No, that's not true um, with anything, but you can decrease your risk. And with the rates of type one diabetes increasing in this country, certainly we should take pause and turn that, you know, around or decrease that risk in our children wherever possible. Right. And of course, when a child, when someone gets type one diabetes at a very young age, as a juvenile, I mean, that's a, that's a, an early death sentence. Their lifespan's not going to be uh, the same as a traditional uh, American, and it's going to be a harder life with full of disease and, and chronic illness and other complications. Absolutely. It's a lifelong illness, right? Um, so it's where the insulin is just not being produced. Um, and so type 2 diabetes is a little bit different, and we can see a little bit more reversal on that. But type 1 diabetes, you know, we can help mitigate it a little bit, even, you know, with our best efforts, but that's a lifelong uh, chronic disease that sets you up for long-term, very detrimental issues along with early mortality. Yes. Yeah. So like blindness, <laughs> kidney disease, heart disease, I, I guess a whole host of problems, neuropathies, nerve problems. Never mind the psychological impacts of that as a child, you know, knowing that you have to take shots and you can't eat like other children and you're different, you know, I mean, that's huge. I mean, I think, you know, more and more in medicine, we're, we're having to bind this, you know, heart, kidney, you know, body and my, like the mind part of it. I mean, it's, there are, even though we have all these specialties, they're all of the same person, right? I can like change your mindset on something and your body can heal, right? This is essentially the placebo effect, <laughs> right? You believe it is, it's going to heal you and it does, even though it's just a sugar pill. So, you know, the mind of it and the psychological aspect of it is sometimes worse than anything else. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was interested in seeing if we can uh, move on a little bit to learning a little bit more about yourself, your interests in lifestyle medicine and some programs that you participated in. Yeah, my, I've done a few different forums and panels, um, you know, here in Houston, just, you know, doctor panels with different questions. Um, I've, I've been developing my website, doing some blog posts on there. Um, and, you know, just trying to do our part in spreading the word. Um, I was just part of um, this recent breast cancer awareness summit with HippocratesDocs.com. That was in collaboration with PCRM, which is your Physicians Committee for Responsible Me Medicine with Neil Barnard, Dr. Neil Barnard. And um, I was the interviewer for, you know, that series, which was so fun um, to meet everybody. And I got to, you know, talk to Dr. Riz here. And it was, um, you know, getting that awareness out. And as a, from a pediatric point of view, I mean, it if you had talked to me like, I mean, I've been doing this for, you know, almost five years now, but like you talked to me six years ago, I would have been like, what's a pediatrician doing on a breast cancer awareness, you know, summit, like kids don't have to worry about this. And you mean, I would have thought the same way. And, you know, being here in Houston, we have one of the big, the best, biggest cancer centers, MD Anderson. I used to send my patients to MD Anderson from New York, actually. Um, and uh, we had a representative come down to our office and was just sort of doing an intro about, you know, their pediatric wards and stuff. And so she told us that they were having 12 and 13 year olds with breast cancer. And I was like, I'm sorry, come again. And, and this was like pretty early on when I joined that practice and was doing starting to int integrate my plant-based messaging. And that just like 
blew me away. And I was just like, okay, I'm on my game now. Like I can't be as a pediatrician, knowing dairy increases your risk of breast cancer, cannot not tell people that this is a huge risk if we are literally having children with breast cancer. So what contributes to childhood breast cancer? I think, I mean, literally, it's probably the amount of dairy. I don't know officially. I don't even know that they've started studying it yet because these this is new, you know. Um, but the importance of breast tissue development, you know, again, your age of menarche is decreasing and that breast tissue starts to develop before you start your period. So those early years when you're developing that breast tissue, if there are hormones and growth factors and, you know, like all the estrogen and all that influencing that breast tissue um, growth and cellular division, then you can imagine that if that cellular division is going awry because of all that growth hormone and estrogens and all that, then, you know, honestly, I guess it makes sense. And if you're getting that influence from even in utero, just like we know heart disease starts in utero, yeah. right? That means like within your fetus, like there have been um, studies done where they have found fatty streaks, which is are the first signs of heart disease and clogged arteries in fetuses that were stillborn, you know, where they did autopsy reports and things like that. So, I mean, that again was another study that just gave me pause. I mean, God, you don't ever like, you almost didn't want them to do that study. Like how, how could we know that this is happening in utero and not change things? Right. But, um, so heart disease itself is starting in utero. So what if we went back and looked at, you know, some of these reports of breast tissue, you know, is it starting at like, as soon as those breast tissue cells are, are dividing before we can even see it on the body? Um, you know, and so that's probably a lot to do with it. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the way I look at it is we're creating this in uh, the right milieu or environment within these young children's bodies to promote cancer. You know, we're we're uh, with our with our diet, they're getting earlier menarche uh, and with our diet, they're getting high uh, exposure to estrogens. And then because of our standard American diet, uh, it's a it's a very pro inflammatory and pro cancer environment. So yeah. we're doing everything we can to cause cancer at a younger age uh, right. in these children. So it, yeah. it, it doesn't, it's, it's shocking, but it's not surprising. Exactly. That, I mean, that's probably the, so well put, you know, like I'm like, at first I'm taking it back and then I'm like, yeah, I guess so. I mean, if we can find heart disease, then we can find breast cancer and, you know, liver problems and all of that. Right. Yeah. I mean, the way I look at it is if you walk out in front of a car, you're going to get hit, going to get hit, you know? So yeah. it's, right, it, right. it's shocking, but it's not surprising. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. So as you're developing your website, um, are you going to be offering any sort of virtual classes for your patients or for parents to offer them tips? Um, so on my website, I have an area where that people can sort of email me and sign up for like a free like 30 minute consultation. Um, again, most of what I do on as far as the plant based side is just, you know, uh, labor of love. Um, I just want to get that message out there, you know, so I just as much as I can, um, you know, they can contact me and, you know, pick my brain on what they, you know, their curiosities on plant-based or just going plant-based completely. Um, this is, you know, my passion in life. Um, again, just letting people know how good the good is, you know, um, and how we can turn things around and give our children the best opportunity, um, you know, for success later in life, because these habits have to change early. You know, your eating habits are, are essentially established by seven years old. 
So whatever your habits or your family's habits and things like that have been up until that age, and it seems so young. And when I first read that, I was kind of like, oh, wow. Like if you look at a seven-year-old, like they've already established how they're going to eat for the rest of their life, you know? Um, and that's what the studies are showing. Um, so we need to be very cognizant and mindful of, you know, you know, families are like, oh, my grandfather had the same problem. I have the same problem. I'm like, well, were you guys all eating the same way? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like you were eating pot roast with your grandparents. You're eating pot roast now. <laughs> um, you know, so it's like, oh, we're all high cholesterol. So that's just our, our genetics, right? But it's only like two to 5% of issues that are actually genetic, right? Most of it, even the genetic things we can influence, we know now um, with, our in, with our understanding of epigenetics, um, which which is the expression of our genes that we can actually change based on, again, that milieu we create um, in our environment. So just because you have your gene doesn't mean that that's your, you know, end result. Like you can actually, again, select and be like, nope, not going to select that gene. We're going to skip, skip over that and just keep going. <laughs> Do you have any tips for parents? Tips for parents would be just, you know, be creative, but be mindful also, probably more importantly, of the foods that we are creating a narrative around. Um, you know, let's make rewards more things like, you know, picking the movie on Friday night or, you know, doing a nail polish day or spending an hour just one on one time. Um, things like that versus like, if you do this, you'll get your candy. If you do this, you know, we'll go out for ice cream. Um, I really love for that to be a message that changes. Um, you know, with our parents or, you know, making the reward a fruit salad. But, you know, I think it's, it's probably more likely um, that we can change those reward systems away from these um, types of foods, because these are, again, habits people are falling back on later in life. So whenever, you know, you have a bad day at work, it's like, well, I had a bad day, so I'm going to go drink a beer, or I had a bad day, I'm going to go eat a donut. Um, you know, so let's try to get away from those things and do things that are more constructive. Um, and again, just, you know, think twice before. I mean, the first two things I cut out of my, my patient's diet is um, dairy, which is cow's milk, cow's milk products, um, goat's milk. People always ask me about that, but you know, essentially same idea because it's an animal protein. So dairy, goat's milk, all those kind of products, try to cut that out. It, you know, there are non-dairy options available in every single store nowadays. So there's no, you know, reason not to try it. Um, and two is processed meats because we know it's a type one carcinogen. So processed meats include anything that's not right off the animal. I mean, obviously I want everyone to go plant-based, but these are the first two changes I tried to get people to make on that journey. Um, and it's because of its profound effect in the body almost immediately. Um, and taking away can cause so much benefit almost, you know, I don't say immediately, but very quickly. Um, so take those foods out. Processed meats, again, are like your deli meats, your luncheon meats, which people are surprised to hear about. Um, sausages, bacon, um, curated meats like prosciutto, pepperoni, get all that stuff, that junk out of your diet. That is number one priority. Um, and model good behavior. If you're not eating, you know, the bean burrito, they're not going to eat the bean burrito. If you're not eating the broccoli, they're not going to eat it. So model good behavior and make the good super exciting and um, as amazing as it is. So. All right. Well, I think that's wonderful advice. I think those are two great places to start, actually. Those, mm -hmm. those are, you know, there's a, there's a million places you can start, but those have a tremendous impact right away. Yeah. Right. 
And how can people learn more from you? My website is RoxanneGeorgeMD.com. So uh, R-O-X-A-N-N-E, George, just like George Washington, <laughs> MD at, um, at MD.com. So um, yeah, so, you know, I kind of have little things starting over there and feel free to reach out to me. I'm pretty available. If you're in the North Houston area, um, you know, Google me and you can find me, um, my practice. And um, I'm on plantbaseddocs.com um, where you can do like a search engine for a plant-based doctor in your area. Um, I'm on like vegan parenting groups and things like that on Facebook. Um, so try to give my two cents there, uh, especially in the Woodlands area. I, I feel like my name has gotten pretty <laughs> um, widespread over there. Um, and so if you're around or if you're anywhere in the country, just use that search engine, plant-based docs, um, to find a plant-based physician near you to help support you through this journey. And if not, just, you know, reach out to somebody via their email. Um, you know, if you need a pediatrician, of course, more than happy to help. But if it's like internal medicine or something like that, you know, we're actually so excited about this movement. And this is our passion that there's so many of us, um, you know, just waiting to help. Um, so feel free to contact and, you know, I'm sure you'll be able to find someone to help you on this journey. All right, Dr. George, thank you very much. We've enjoyed having you on the show. Uh, uh, best of luck to you. I appreciate it. This was so much fun. Thank you for letting me be here. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. You've been listening to the plant-based dfw podcast show if you like our content please like share and leave a review our goal is to provide quality episodes to help support the community